A reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking up until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority and were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. We now go to Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Matthew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spill out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Marion. Well, let me uh, encourage you to um, have your Bibles open in Acts 1, although we will make a fleeting visit back to Daniel 7. You thought it was safe, didn't you, to leave the book of Daniel for a while? Not so, at least not for today. Okay. Can you bring my uh, the first slide up, please? Thank you. That's great. There we go. Well, world leaders, world leaders, they can be a bit of a strange lot, aren't they? And, uh, uh, and I guess it's very rare that you or I might get to meet one of them. But a good friend of mine from a few years ago now actually met Bill Clinton when he came to Australia in 1996 and he was President of the United States. Uh, my friend was a young bloke and he worked in the Foreign Affairs Department and he says everybody in that department were pushing to get an invite to one of the official functions. And somehow he got lucky. He got to shake the president's hand. I still don't think he's washed it since. He reckons it was the greatest experience of his life and he's never been close, that close to power. Well, let me introduce you to a world leader who will accept nothing less than absolute dominion, but his name is not Vladimir Putin. Let me introduce you to a world leader who demolishes national boundaries, who won't tolerate second place to any other king, but it's not Adolf Hitler. Let me introduce you to a world leader who expects to be followed, even worshipped, by Australians as much as Koreans, Americans, Italians, 
by the French as well as the Jews, but his name's not Joe Biden or Kim Jong-un. I want to introduce you to Jesus. Jesus as we meet him in the book of Acts. Whoop, where are we going? There we are. Um, and it's a funny thing in one way, because you aren't, of course, you actually only get a glimpse of Jesus in the book of Acts. By the middle of uh, chapter one, he's gone in rather dramatic circumstances. And the book, while it's certainly called the Act of the Apostles, and it is about Peter and Paul and John and the others and the things that they do, but of course, underlying it all, it really is a book about Jesus. It's a history book that takes us from the time of the resurrection of Jesus, when there's only a grand total of about 120 Christians in existence, and shows us how the church first grew and spread to the point where there were, by the end of the book, there were thousands of Christians right through the Roman world. The book of Acts is, of course, written by Luke, the same Luke who wrote Luke's gospel. Think of it like Luke Reloaded, the sequel, if you like. And so let's have a look at what Luke says. Right at the start of Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he's dedicating the book to a man called Theophilus, exactly as he did with his gospel. Here are the words of verse 1. Luke says, in my former book, Theophilus, that is meaning his gospel, he says, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. And now here's the sequel, which you have to assume is going to be about what Jesus keeps on doing and teaching, except it's going to be in a different way. Because, as I said, in the middle of chapter one, Jesus is gone. He's left the planet. And yet, if you read through this book of the Acts of the Apostles, as I hope you'll do in the coming weeks, we are going to see Jesus at work by his spirit through his apostles. Now, these are, of course, the men that Jesus has chosen to be the foundation of his church. These are the guys that Jesus has trained, who he's poured himself into as he's taught them for the last three years. These are the men that Jesus has authorized to take his gospel to the world. And so now Luke picks up the story at the point where Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, there's a space of around 40 days or so before he returns to his father. And in verses 2 and 3, you see what Jesus is doing. He's training them. He's getting them ready for the awesome task that's in front of them, which can be summarized as saying, they're going to be talking, breathing, living the gospel of Jesus. Now, I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about this a little bit, because did you ever think about how unlikely it sounds that for a bunch of 11 ordinary blokes, most of them uh, from the local fish co-op, uh, and, and say to them, all right, guys, this is going to be your job. You are going to change the world. Literally, you're going to be the start of something so big that it's going to end up everywhere. And that actually in 2,000 odd years time, there's going to be this suburb called Penrith 
in this place called Australia and there's going to be a bunch of people getting together on Sunday to hear what you did. I mean, remarkable, isn't it? Just a a group of men who were mainly tradies with a couple of white-collar workers thrown in for good measure. They're the sort of guys that Jesus is working with, fishermen, a tax collector and a few others. And verse 2 says Jesus spends the day after days after his resurrection giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to these men, these apostles that he had chosen. And the rest of the book of Acts is their story. And it is an exciting one. Uh, Like many people, you may have struggled in reading through the book of Daniel recently, or at least parts of that. Let me say, reading through the book of Acts is not difficult. What I find difficult is stopping. Because it's such a roller coaster ride. We see how the deep, life-transforming nature of the gospel starts to take hold of this bunch of very ordinary people and, well, transforming them. So I want to say, be inspired by what we see in this opening chapter. Be inspired as you read on through the book of Acts and see it as an exciting time in the family tree of the church of Jesus. Now, like I said, Luke sets the scene with the apostles in training, getting ready. And you'll see that from verse 3, there are actually a couple of things that Jesus particularly wants them to get right. So after his resurrection, uh, we, we can read that he keeps coming back, he keeps showing himself to the apostles and teaching them, and it seems like time and time again, He has to convince them that he's actually alive in the flesh and he's not some kind of ghost. It's almost too incredible for them to take it in because they had seen him dead, but now he was alive. And that just doesn't happen, does it? And we're going to see the fact that he's actually risen, the fact that this is the one man in all history that death could not hold. And that is going to be absolutely fundamental to the rest of these apostles' lives. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the key thing the apostles are going to witness to. Just drop your eye down to verse 22 for a minute uh, to get that picture. Because they're trying to decide who to appoint to take over as an apostle Uh, uh, from Judas, who, of course, we know betrayed Jesus and then killed himself. Now, if these guys were putting an ad on, say, seek.com.au, here's the main point that it would be making. Here's the main qualification for this replacement person. They're looking for someone who has seen what has happened from the beginning. And by that they mean from John's baptism, that's John the Baptist's baptism, right up to the end. Because they say in verse 22, one of these two guys must become a witness with us of the resurrection. That's the job. A witness to the resurrection of Jesus. 
All right, back to verse 3. Time and time again, he does what I think Jesus probably did to Thomas. Remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas? When Jesus would say to him, take a look, feel me, I'm real. Don't be fooled. Now, to you and I, that may seem reasonably logical, reasonably straightforward. If you've been around churches like ours for any length of time, you'll know that this is core material for us. But you know, there are lots of people who still want to say the resurrection was just a figment of the apostles' imagination. Heaven forbid there are church leaders who teach that. There are people who want to say the resurrection is some kind of spiritual way of saying that the memory of Jesus lived on with them and inspired them. But that's not the message here, is it? It's abundantly clear. He is alive. He is with them. He's talking to them. He's eating fish and chips with them. And in the rest of verse 3, you get the other key point in their training course. Because he spoke with them about the kingdom of God. Now, can I take a moment and say this whole idea of the kingdom of God it's an idea that you really do have to try and wrap your brain around if you're going to understand pretty much anything in the New Testament. Because we're used to thinking about kingdoms in some very different ways that Jesus, than Jesus was doing. And the apostles were making the same, I wouldn't say mistake. Well, it probably was a mistake for them to think this way. We think, we think about kingdoms even today as patches of ground, don't we? Maybe like the UK. The United Kingdom is marked out by the borders of England, Wales, Ireland and Scotland. But the kingdom of God is nothing like that. The kingdom of God is marked out by a people. And geography just doesn't come into it. Mind you, even after Jesus has been talking to them, the apostles don't quite get it. And they ask him in verse 6, they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to throw out the Romans? Are you going to, going to take back the throne of David in Jerusalem and take up your rightful place on that? Mark out the borders on the map? To which Jesus says to them, worse to the effect of, sorry guys, that's not how it works. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. And then he goes on to say, this is not just an Israel thing anyway. It's much bigger than that. Verse 8, he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. There we go. But then wider than that, the region of Judea. But there's more to come still because Samaria's included. And that's where the Samaritans live, of course, and who the Jews hate and won't even associate with. But then further, to the ends of the earth. And that's the job description of those early believers. The Holy Spirit's going to come on them, which we'll see next week how that works. 
And he's going to move them from being this cowed and defeated and confused group of people that we saw after the first Easter. And he's going to give them the power to live for Jesus and the words to say and the acts to do, the things to do, to start fanning out from Jerusalem in ever-increasing circles. These 12 ordinary men take in this incredible news of Jesus' death and resurrection right to the ends of the earth. And of course, that's exactly what you see in the book of Acts. And verse 8 here is like a table of contents, if you like. The rest of the book spells it out, stage by stage, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then by chapter 22, Paul is actually way off in Rome, which was pretty much the centre of the civilised known world back then. And what's he doing in Rome? He's preaching the same gospel of the risen Jesus. That is what the kingdom of God is all about. It's not about Israel anymore or national boundaries. It's all about calling people everywhere to submit to the risen Jesus because he's king. Now, all of that may not be immediately obvious, but the next thing that happens is a pretty broad hint. And I want to say sometimes this is just brushed over in a way that's a little glib. But check out verse 9. It's an astonishing thing. It's the sort of thing that if you were present there for this, the hair on the back of your neck would be standing up. Because here they are on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, out just on the east side of Jerusalem, and Jesus is talking to them, and he's telling them they're going to be his witnesses to the world, and then get this, and I love Luke's very economical uh, words at this point. Verse 9, after this, he said, he was taken up before, um, uh, taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never actually seen a person float up into the clouds before. I don't know how I'd feel watching it. Luke doesn't say whether there was a whooshing noise or thunder and lightning or, or anything like that. Just that sentence, he was taken up before their eyes. Now, apart, I guess, from the obvious drama of this scene, this is an event of actually very special significance. And this is where we'd need to duck back to our first reading from Daniel 7. Uh, because uh, you may recall it was this vision, uh, this vision of Daniel. Um, it's in, uh, in Daniel, uh, uh, in those verses we read from Daniel chapter 7 a bit earlier on. And in this vision, particularly those last couple of verses of that uh, reading, Daniel saw a coronation. Now, I'm guessing that I'm like a lot of you and I watched at least most of the coronation of King Charles a couple of months ago. Uh, all the pomp and the ceremony. 
Charles parading down the aisle of Westminster Abbey, going through all those symbolic rituals culminating in his crowning. Well, I want to say Daniel's vision is even bigger than that. It is a coronation, but not in Westminster Abbey. Rather, the throne room is in heaven itself, in the presence of God himself. And in his vision, of course, hundreds of years before Jesus, we know Jesus as a person on earth, Daniel sees this figure who he calls one like a son of man. And instead of walking down the aisle like Charles did, he's coming on the clouds towards God, the Ancient of Days, and he's crowned king over all the nations. And Daniel says, men of every language praise and honour him, and it's a kingdom that's never going to end. Now I'm pretty sure that you'll remember, if you read much of the Bible, the New Testament in particular, that Jesus often called himself the Son of Man. So you can see there's not too big a jump here, is there, to make a link to what's going on in Daniel 7 and what's happening here in Acts chapter 1. When he's finally finished training his apostles, when he's told them they've got to be his witnesses um, uh, to all the earth, what does he then tell them when he's taken up on the clouds? It's not that heaven is literally in this sort of space above us somewhere. It's that Jesus is playing out Daniel's vision. He's saying to them, I'm now going, I'm on my way to the throne. I'm about to be crowned as king over every nation and all people. And so those apostles in verse 9 of Acts 1, are seeing Daniel's vision fulfilled with their own eyes. Happening right in front of them. Jesus is crowned king of every nation. He's God's appointed ruler of everywhere. And this little bunch of ordinary men have got the job of announcing it and telling the world. How do you reckon they're going to go? I mean, scary job, isn't it? I think it's scary having uh, enough just having Penrith or the Western region to worry about of Sydney. They had the whole known world as their target. And they're just ordinary people like you and I. They didn't even have Bible college training like Mark and I have. But that's the opening scene of the book of Acts that's setting the scene for the rest of this book, proclaiming the ultimate king who rules from heaven, calling people to turn from their sin and submit to him. A huge job, massive job, but one that is powered by King Jesus and the Holy Spirit, which is exactly the same job those first apostles have passed on to us. Talking, breathing, living the gospel of the risen Jesus. But let me just make one couple of, well, uh, two more comments before we finish. 
If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, there's a phrase that we will often use, and I wonder how much we really mean it. We will often uh, hear these words bandied around in church circles, Jesus is Lord. And we mouth these words, I think, fairly easily, but what do they actually mean? What are we meaning when we say those words? Well, I think that one thing as we read Acts that I reckon is very, very clear, and that's the fact that these apostles, when they talk about Jesus being Lord, it isn't just a glib phrase that rolls off their tongues. When they talk about Jesus being king, they mean it literally. And we know that because, as you'll see as you go through Acts, they go around talking about him. That's the reason they keep getting into trouble. Because they're talking publicly, openly, to anyone who will listen about another authority, a new king, someone who is over and above Caesar or the Jewish authorities or anyone else for that matter. Someone who really does have the authority to tell people how to live their lives in a way that no governor, no emperor or prime minister or politician ever can. When they said Jesus was king, they meant it literally and they lived it. It changed their lives, totally turned them around. And this is really worth thinking about hard because this is not just our lives at stake here. Consider the fact that the church is always just one generation away from extinction. All it takes is one generation that slips into unbiblical teaching, uh, into sinful behaviour, and the gospel is at risk of being lost. So as we wind the clock back to the first century over these coming weeks, can I urge you, learn from the energy, the zeal, the commitment of these early disciples. And remember that the cause of the gospel now is just as urgent as it was then. Let King Jesus change your life. Let him refocus your priorities so that you in turn can impact the lives of others in the way that these early disciples did. And in doing so, be an active part of the gospel continuing to spread and thrive throughout the known earth. Amen.